0: Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 15. By way of introduction, um, let's just begin, all right? In John Bunyan's second installment of the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, where Christiana and her children in Mercy were on their pilgrimage to the celestial city. And accompanied by Mr. Greatheart, they came to a place where Christian had earlier, in the first book, done battle with Apollyon. Christiana's son Samuel asked Mr. Greatheart to point out the exact place where this battle took place. Mr. Greatheart responded, and I quote, Your father had the battle with Apollyon at the place yonder before us, in a narrow passage just beyond forgetful green. And indeed, that place is the most dangerous place in these parts. For if at any time pilgrims meet with any brunt, it is when they forget what favors they have received and how unworthy they are of them, End quote. Forgetful green has led many Christians to great misery, for it is there where we forget of the great graces that God has given to us in and through Jesus Christ. Forgetting of the great grace of God, we are more prone to give in to temptation. It is wise that we remember our past. And that is the antidote, of course, to forgetful green. We need to remember our past, which is this morning's sermon title. Now that you're all in Deuteronomy... Turn to verse uh, 12. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 15, and we're going to pay particular attention to verse 15. I'll turn there myself. I'm a little behind. Deuteronomy chapter 15, starting in verse 12. The word of the Lord reads. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress, as the Lord your God has blessed you you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as as a people with nothing to boast about. Other than that, we are great sinners. We serve a great Savior. Hmm. Impress upon our mind our great need of grace, even this morning. May your tender mercies enrapture our heart um, to the heavenlies, Lord, where we would behold our position that is secure in us because of what your Son, Jesus, has done. And so, Lord, in our hearts, we are seated with Him on high. In our pilgrimage here, Lord, may we not forget that we were slaves. Slaves to sin, slaves to our flesh, the serve its sinful ways. As a result, Lord, Humble our hearts this morning. We have nothing to boast about in ourselves. May our boasts be only in you. So I pray, Lord, even with the psalmist, open our eyes so that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Do this so that your name would be exalted in our thoughts and in our actions. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is an important book in the Bible. In fact, the last book of the Pentateuch. It is really the second giving of the law. That's where the name comes from. Deuteronomos, second law. Why? Well, the first group of Israelites that were ransomed out of Egypt, they failed in Numbers chapter 12. They gave in. They did not go into the promised land and take it. They doubted God's promise. They broke the covenant. And therefore, as a result, God um, punished them, killing off a whole generation and taking 40 years to do so. And so it's a a book of second chances. And, And Moses is here. This is his last words. He's led the Israelites now for 40 years through good times and bad. From the Red Sea to the building of a golden calf at Mount Sinai. We oftentimes place special attention to a man's last words. It kind of sums up what's most important as he knows that his minutes, uh, he only has minutes to live. And so Deuteronomy is a book where there's three speeches and it's Moses' last words. You see his heart being poured out to the people of Israel. And the real question is, would this generation of Israelites be faithful? Would they succeed where their fathers failed? Would they stay true to the covenant and go in and possess the promised land and enjoy God's bountiful care? Now, the context of what we read here, verses 12 through 15, all right, pretty simple. It's regulations about slavery. In those days, if you could not pay off your debt, and there was no bankruptcy. You couldn't just escape your debt. and Therefore, there was a seriousness about borrowing money. If you could not pay off your debt and you had no more assets to sell off, well, you had one yourself. And so you became that person's Slave. We have the regulations here, six years of service to pay off the debt. Now, on the seventh year, the master was to let his slave go free. The debt has been paid off. Beyond that, you even see here in the text that he was to give him generously out of his own possessions. So that the newly freed slave would be equipped, would have resources, so he wouldn't have to immediately fall back into slavery and borrowing. We he ha- he would have a little bit of money and possessions to start a new life. It really typifies the Israelites. They were slaves in Egypt, God freed them through a series of plagues. And by the time the Egyptians finally freed the Israelites, God said gave favor to the Israelites amongst the Egyptians. So whatever the Israelites asked for, the Egyptians gave to them. The Egyptians wanted them out of there that badly. I can't say I don't blame them there after those plagues. And so the Israelites, in starting off as a a nation, a freed nation, they had possessions. Now, our motivation to obey this, or the Israelites' motivation to obey this, is in verse 15. Read it again with me. You shall remember. First of all, that's a command. It's in the imperative. You shall remember what? That you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. God's redeeming the Israelites out of slavery where they could, with a heart of compassion, identify with these people who were so down on their fortunes that they had to sell themselves into slavery. They could say, I know what that's like. As a people, we were there. And as God blessed us and redeemed us and provided for us, It's my responsibility to care for, to be compassionate towards you, and to set you free with possessions so that you are well off. That's the background. Today I'm doing something different. It's somewhat of a sermon, somewhat of a history lesson. And I want to give you this as a history lesson, the testimony of a man whose life exemplified Deuteronomy 15.15. This verse was written above his study. He looked at it every day. Remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God redeemed you. It really was his life verse. I'm speaking about the man John Newton. It's a brief overview. Newton was born in 1725 in London to a godly mother and a very irreligious father. His mother died when Newton was 6. At 11 he became a sailor and he revelled deeply in his sin. He was a slave trading sea captain. After his conversion, he was an immensely loved pastor of two congregations, one in Olney, England, and one in London. He was a devoted husband to his wife, Mary. He was a personal friend of William Wilberforce, Henry Martin, the missionary, William Carey, William Cooper, John Wesley, and George Whitfield. Personal friend to all those men. Above all, we know him best for this. He's the writer of the most famous hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace. In remembering his past, Newton, by the grace of God, was equipped to live a life for the glory of God. That's what we're called to do, whether you eat or drink. Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. First 1 Corinthians 10.31 We will look at this morning seven areas where Newton remembered his past and thus enabled him to live a godly life that is worth imitating. In all these areas, we are going to dive into Scripture because if we were just to do a biography up here, it would be in and of itself of little value. He would be just another great man man in a list of very great men throughout history. But when we see him living out the principles of Scripture, we can be amazed at what God did through his life. So seven areas where Newton remembered his past, where he lived by Deuteronomy 15.15. Here's the first area. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Remember your slavery. Remember your slavery. Or another way to put it Christian, you need to remember what you were like before you were saved. You need to remember what you were like before you were saved. Looking at Newton, at age 11, he started working on his father's ship. His father was a sailor. He threw himself so much into a debauched lifestyle of swearing and extreme drunkenness even before he hit puberty. Drafted later on into the British Navy, um, he had an utter disdain for authority, which obviously didn't go too well for him there. That caused him to desert the British Navy. He was caught and was Uh, strapped up and flogged severely. In fact, for the rest of his life, he bore the marks of the lashes that were on his back. That didn't teach him his lesson. As soon as he had a little bit of freedom, he deserted the Navy again. He was caught up and taken by a press gang, men who were basically capturing uh, other men to be sailors. It was here, the outward manifestations of his sinfulness uh, really exploded. It is said of Newton that he knew more swear words than any other man on earth at that time. Remember that the next time you're singing Amazing Grace. It is said of him that he could swear for two straight hours without repeating himself. Newton again jumped ship, and he wanted to go to Africa with this Portuguese slave trader. Newton wrote in his diary, and I quote, I went to Africa that I might sin to my heart's content, that I may sin my fill, end quote. And there his heart grew increasingly harder and harder and harder in the slave trade as he bargained for, bought, and sold human beings. Purchasing them from camps and sometimes having them march them inland as some of the people died along the way. and He just left them on the roadside to die. Or taking them in his ships, where the conditions were so atrocious that a lot of times as the man was laying there sick and dying, they just threw him overboard to do away with it, knowing that he wouldn't finish the voyage. He had a low estimate on human life. He spent many years doing this, and one time when the Portuguese slave trader left for a few months and left Newton in his home in Africa, this Portuguese man had a, a, a harem of wives. The chief wife there absolutely disdained and hated John Newton. And so as soon as the Portuguese man was gone, she had Newton chained up and the slave trader became a slave. He was beaten severely. They mocked and tortured him. Many a times, uh, as he would be so thirsty for water, near the point of death, they would put water before him, and as soon as he's about ready to get it, they would spill it on the ground and taunt him. His food would be thrown on the ground, and he was allowed to pick it up with his hands to eat it. In his diary, he talks about he had to pick it up with his mouth, and in his mouth, he would try to separate the food from the dirt. And yet, even in his diary, when looking back upon this experience, some of his famous words that were repeated over and over and over at this stage of his life was, I forgot, I forgot, I forgot. God was trying to teach him a lesson, but he forgot. One day when he was unchained for work purposes, Newton fled into the heart of Africa. Very dangerous (laughs) proposition for any man. He eventually made his way into the heart of Africa, followed a river up. Uh, Since he was a navigator, he could read the stars and knew that this river was kind of following the seacoast and then went up quite a few miles and then cut back over to the ocean. He eventually made it to the coast, built a fire, and signaled a ship. By God's providence, the sea captain uh, who picked him up knew Newton's father. And also by God's providence, within the last two weeks, both his first mate and second mate had died. So he had a position an opening a job for Newton. And so Newton became the ship's first mate. Now, two days later, the the ship uh, docks in port, pulls up. The captain gets in the little lifeboat, goes to the shore to conduct some business. While the captain was gone, Newton broke open a barrel of rum and got the whole crew drunk. When The captain got back, since he was going to sell that rum, you can imagine that he was not happy with John Newton. They got into a fight. He swung something at Newton. Newton stumbled back, fell into the water. As a sailor, Newton couldn't even swim, though, and he was sinking very quickly. So a man actually took a harpoon and harpooned him in the side to pull him back aboard. He lived with the scar for the rest of his life, obviously, from that. And with this, the ship set sail for England. And again, I remind you okay, when you (laughs) sing. the words to amazing grace. Have that in your mind. If you want to look at the man, he really was a wretch. But if we look in our souls, so are we. Now, John 8, verse 34. It reads, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's what Jesus himself said. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 6. And he points out that basically you are a slave to the one you serve. The unbeliever is a slave to sin. The believer is a slave to the Lord. And according to Romans chapter 5 verses 18 and 19, We are born slaves to sin since we are born with an imputed, um, sinful nature from our forefather, Adam. So born into this world, we're not free. We're slaves to sin. We inherited this by Adam's disobedience, and we're chained to sin. Our free will in that case is to pick which sin suits us best but we are bound to sin. Therefore, the words of Christ are all the more precious, are they not? The Son shall set you free. You shall be free indeed. Why today must we remember of our sinful past? Why? Why? I would say because of our sinful present. How quickly can you become harshly judgmental of other unbelievers? Prideful in your thinking, thinking that you're better than that person? Instead of being gracious and patient and loving and merciful towards the lost who are slaves to their sin, Oftentimes we can become indifferent, uncaring, inhospitable, just plain out, mean, and cruel. This is important. It's in fact commanded in Scripture. In First Corinthians chapter six verses nine through 11, I want you to listen to. And understand what Paul is doing here to the Corinthians. Because he's basically telling them, remember your past. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, long list of sins. These will keep you out of heaven. They're proof by that habitual lifestyle that you're not saved. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that would be bad news if it wasn't for verse 11. And such were, past tense, some of you. Remember your past. You were these men. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You have nothing to boast out about these same gross, heinous sins you practiced and reveled in. Such were some of you. The only thing you can boast about is this. Christ washed you in His blood. He justified you by His grace. And now you stand complete in God, not on anything that you've done, but because God showed you mercy Paul himself often remembered his past. In First Timothy uh, chapter one, verses 12 through 15, he says this: "I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to a service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent." but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our God overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. He was talking about his past. Here he is late in his ministry planting churches, greatest evangelist, greatest church planner the world has ever known. And what is he thinking back to? I persecuted the way. I led Christians off to their death. I'm the chief sinner. I've sinned greater than more than any man ever. I'm sure Paul went into some places and he saw some of the gross sins that were happening out in the open, he would need to reflect back on these things and say, you know what? They chose that sin. My sin was self-righteousness. I'm no better. They're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I needed grace. They need grace. our second point we'll pick up the pace. First of all we need to remember our past before we were saved. Secondly, we need to remember God's providence in leading up to your salvation. Those things that God put in your life to save you. In John Newton's case there was his mother She died when he was six years old. This should be a strong testimony to any of you who are parents. His mother gave herself totally the John, her only child. Hours and hours and hours praying earnestly for him and his salvation. By the time she died, This faithful had taught her son to memorize over 500 Bible verses. That's impressive. Even more impressive than that, John Newton memorized the shorter Westminster Catechism by the age of six. And what we'll see later on, you'll see how important all that is. It seemed like for many years all that work was in vain, but no. Even at the earliest of ages, Newton's mother prayers and in, in her, in her efforts toward her son were not in vain. That's the, the first providence that really God would use to save Newton. But his salvation is actually seen as he's selling back to England. The, the ship Newton was on encountered a fair storm. They decided to go around uh, Ireland. And the ship starts taking all water, starts breaking apart. The masts come down. It's a very dire situation in the storm. Everybody is terrified. Everybody in, in, on the ship is fearing for their lives. Newton seeing all this, it caused him to cry out, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. And as soon as the words were out of his mouth, it startled Newton. It's the first time that he could ever remember that he didn't blaspheme God's name. And it even shocked him more that he was actually begging God for mercy. He knew God showing him mercy was his only hope. And had been a sailor all of his life, he knew the oceans, he knew he was going to die. In Newton's own words, "I I, I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and call Him my Father. My prayer for mercy was like the cry of the ravens, which the Lord does not disdain to hear. That night, all night long, manning the pumps, to pump the water out of the hole, Newton prayed, O Lord, I have prayed to Thee, and I have said that if Thou shalt show me mercy, if Thou shalt show me mercy. It's so there in the hole of the ship, pumping out water, that this man starts to remember back to his mother, starts to remember back those Bible verses, start coming into his memory, and especially he remembered God's promise found in Romans, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He exclaimed with tears of joy, I have called upon the name of the Lord. The ship docked in Scotland. John Newton made his way back to Liverpool, a changed man, a saved man. Redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we too, as Christians, are to be like John Newton there. We need to stop and reflect of the events that God used us to bring us and to break us so that we could fall on our knees and beg God for mercy and His grace. Our conversion experience is powerful. It's a powerful testimony to others. As we as a church have gone through the book of Acts, have we not seen that? Consider Paul. He's put up before this trial. And what does he do in Acts chapter 22? Talks about his conversion story. He talks about the events on the road to Damascus and seeing the bright light and everything like that and, and, and being falling down and being blinded in the voice from heaven crying out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It was important for Paul It's important for us to share our testimonies, those events that happened that broke us. Because it magnifies God's grace. And, And secondly, I would say this, why do we need to remember our conversion? It helps us to persevere in evangelizing to our friends and our families and lost ones. I might be the only one here, but I hardly doubt it that, you know what? I did not repent believe the first time I heard the gospel, nor the second, nor the third. I can't count how many times I heard it. And yet did not act in faith. So I preach the gospel again and again and again. As long as the person is willing to listen to it. It may be the hundredth or thousandth time they hear it that they finally repent and believe. We see that lived out in Paul's life in Acts chapter 18. He proclaimed the gospel to the Jews as long as they're willing to listen to it, reasoning with them in the synagogues, and then they uh, basically kick Paul out. They wouldn't hear it anymore. And so what does Paul do? Wipes his feet of the place. Okay, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he stayed in Corinth for a long time, proclaiming the gospel, evangelizing the lost, and making disciples. As long as they're willing to listen, let us persevere in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Point three I see from Newton's life that we should take into consideration. Point three. Remember God's patience and mercy that He's shown to you in your sanctification. Remember God's patience and mercy that He's shown to you as He's making you more into the image of Christ, as He's sanctifying you. Now, here's... Something about Newton you probably have never heard. Contrary to the popular belief, even after he was saved, he continued in the slave trade. He didn't leave it right away. He still struggled with that area of sin. He still struggled even with his language. He continued at sea. Buying and selling human beings. Making profit off of other people. As Christians, we need to do that, right? We need to remember every day God's patience towards us. His mercy towards us as He sanctifies us. Again, I I may be the only one in this room who could say it, but I believe it, and I think it's true of all of you too. I've never lived a perfect day in my life, even after being saved. I've never fully loved God every moment of every day with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm still a long ways off from who I should be. And I think if you look into your heart and you look at who Jesus is and you compare yourself with perfection, you will see that you fall so short too. We need to remember God's patience and mercy towards us. Because other people are going to sin towards us. Other believers are not going to grow as fast in the faith as we think they are. And oftentimes we forget it's taken us a lifetime to get to where we're at. And sometimes our expectations are so um, not right where we expect them to get there automatically, even though it's taken us a lifetime. Paul in First Thessalonians knew this. As he taught to the church there in Thessalonica in First Thessalonians chapter two, and I'm gonna begin reading in verse seven, verses seven and eight, he gets this. When he approached these people who had believed the gospel, notice how he how he describes him ministering to them. Paul's own words. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse seven. But we were gentle among you. Gentle, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. Soft, tender, compassionate. So being affectionately desirous for you, that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become so dear to us. Church in Thessalonica had the problems. But how did Paul deal with them? Like a mother towards her infant. When we deal with other believers, are we to call sin, sin? Yes, we are to speak the truth, but we are to do it in love, in gentleness. And we need to recall how God has done for us, and it motivates us to reciprocate and do that for others. Don't we see this out of Jesus? Peter blew it big time, denying Jesus three times on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And yet we see in the last chapter of John what Jesus comes to Peter. He recommissions him into service, and he does it so gently as he gives them the command, feed my sheep. Our fourth thing to remember, fourth point, remember the trials God has already brought you through. Christian, remember your trials that God has already brought you through. After quitting the slave trade, Newton took a job in Liverpool as a surveyor of tides. Now, this was an extremely well-paying job, but it wasn't his calling. So Newton, a man who basically left education at the age of eight, taught himself both Latin and Greek, and immersed himself fully into God's Word. He was a man set ablaze for the glory of God. He had to know it. And he uh, he wanted others to know it. Now this man so radically changed from selling human lives to being the scholar now. The devil is not going to sit idly by. So trials came his way. He ends up getting married. Him and his wife, Mary, so greatly desired to have children. And as much as they tried, they never did. You read a lot of Newton to see his compassion towards kids and how much he greatly desired one, and yet, Never had one. As he was studying for the ministry, he was rejected over and over and over for ordination as a minister in the Church of England. It would have been easy for him to just say, Well, this is not obviously God's will, so I quit. No never ordained me. Former slave trader drunkard, reviler of God. He could have went that way in his mind even though he was so qualified for the job, so qualified. Finally, he was ordained. He persevered through that trial and he ministered in a church in only Now, in only he had another trial, and this is in serving God by way of a friend who (laughs) was going through a trial himself and probably took up a lot of Newton's time. This man, William Cooper, and spoke about him in a sermon earlier this year, he was a depressed poet, great depressions. His melancholy was, was ministered to by Newton. Newton took him for a time into his own house and cared for him personally. And so, getting his mind off his depression, which would debilitate him, Newton persuaded Cooper to help him write hymns for the people at Olney. So once a week they would write hymns for that Sunday service. And it's interesting when reading through this. Newton explained his conversion to uh, Cooper. And told him that he was going to talk about that next Sunday his salvation and how God saves sinners. Cooper wrote that Friday night. His famous hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, which reads... "And Now, listen to the words. You can picture Newton at sea in this storm. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread are rich in mercy and shall break with blessings on thy head. The next morning, Saturday morning, Newton pens the hymn, Amazing Grace. Even after Newton left only to minister to a church in London, he still sought to encourage Cooper, who was at that time in his probably his deepest depression. It is said of of Newton that he himself, that his house was basically like an infirmary for the sick, those who were just down and out. He opened up his house to everybody. He wanted to minister to those in trials. And in doing so, I'm sure that was rough on his family as well. Now as Christians, we need to remember our trials that we have gone through. Why? Because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, according to James 1.3. We need to remember our past trials because they aid us in being courageous to endure present trials. When we consider that God has been faithful in the past to preserve us, to keep us, so that none can snatch us out of the hand of Christ or out of the hand of the Father. We can fresh courage take and encourage to take these and face head on our present trials. I think this is somewhat in Newton's mind when he wrote the verse Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We need to remember our past trials to help us to minister to those going through trials, do we not? That's the point of the text in Deuteronomy 15.15. Israel was reminded of their past slavery, their past huge trial. 400 years as slaves, as a nation, and yet God redeemed them. They persevered through the trial. God loved them through that trial. And now God in Deuteronomy is saying, use that example historically to minister to others in trial. To others who have lost uh, their freedoms lost their possessions. And it's amazing what he goes on next to say. The command next after these verses that I did not read is absolutely mind-boggling for us today. You, be kind to your slaves. Why? You were a slave once. Be generous to them. Love them. Be compassionate for them. Now, this is included in Scripture because if they followed God's word, this could be a possibility. I stopped at verse 15. Let me pick up in verse 16. But if the slave tells to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an owl, you shall put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever and your female slave, you shall do the same. Some people, even when offered their freedom, would say, no, I love my master so much, I want to be his forever. So here's a person going through the trial, loss of freedom, loss of independence. Here God is telling the nation, the individuals there, be kind and compassionate to them. What might happen? They may love you so much, they may never want to leave. Now, that's ministering to somebody in a trial. Fifth, remember your former zeal for the truth. This is important. In Newton's case... His zeal for the truth caused him to do many great things with his life. He fought the slave trade with William Wilberforce. And so the man that was once a slave trader so encouraged Wilberforce, so wrote about the atrocities of the slave trade that shortly after his death, it was abolished in England. Newton himself had a zeal for the truth where he was kind and tender and compassionate with Christians of all kinds of denominations. He was a personal friend of John's Wesley, even though Newton was a Calvinist. But when John Wesley started preaching the doctrine of Christian perfectionism, that a Christian can literally live without sin upon this earth and be perfect, Newton railed against that doctrine. It would have nothing to do with John Wesley, until he repented of that heresy. So here's a man so kind and tender, but the man has a backbone. He's willing to stand up and fight. He loves the truth. And usually we kind of like fall off on one side or the other. Either we're all compassionate with people we never confront, Anybody on anything, or with the complete opposite? We're always looking for the fight. never being tender towards people. Newton has that good balance, kind, compassionate, tender, but willing to stand up for when it matters. As Christians we're to remember the same thing. We need to remember our zeal when we first were saved. Consider when you were first saved, Christian, how much were you in the Word? How much were you telling everybody you knew about Jesus because of the hope that was within you? And I have to ask, are you carrying the same zeal with you today? Are you that much on fire for the Lord? God knows this is our... plight that we get dull and so as iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another we need to do this there's a warning even given to the church of Ephesus in Revelation right they lost their zeal of following the greatest commandment which was love the Lord and so he says I have this against you you have lost your first love You've left him. You're doing all these other things. Great. They're commendable. But you lost your first love. You're not zealous in that. And so what does he tell him? Uh, Revelation 2 verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Remember your love at first. Remember how much your love has gone down. Repent and do the works you do. Did at first. If not, I'll come and take your lampstand away from you. I'll close down your church. We need to remember our zeal. Sixth, we need to remember your perseverance in serving God. So Newton himself, he pastored diligently for 43 years. It is said of him as he was pastoring that no one loved his congregation More than John Newton. He persevered in preaching into his 80s. Near the end of his life, his eyesight was failing. He actually had to take an aide with him into the pulpit to kind of keep his place in his notes and to get him back on track when he just was lost. There's a man who finished his job to the end. He persevered. As Christians, we need to persevere. We need to look back in those areas of the past where we have shown uh, faithfulness to the Lord. And then when we're put to the challenge in the present, it's to encourage us. Keep on fighting. Put on the full armor of God. Stand strong in the faith against the schemes of the evil one. I believe in the perseverance of the saints, but I'm not a person who believes that that comes automatically, that we're not called to absolutely make our calling and election sure, to do what we can to persevere, to cling to Christ every second of every day. And so, does this make sense scripturally? Yes. Yes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, these words, okay? He's going to recall his past perseverance. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. This grace towards me that he's shown me was not in vain. Now, here it is. On the contrary, I worked harder than ever. Any of them. And he's speaking about the other apostles. I worked harder than Peter, James, or John. Perseverance. But here is what he says, and here's his humility. Though it was not I, it was the grace of God that was within me. He states this and goes through the point of the resurrection. And he gets to the end of chapter 15, and here we see it. Why does he recall to mind his perseverance in the past? To encourage others. So he gets to verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, persevere, be immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And lastly, thanks for hanging in there. Last thing that we see out of Newton's life, biblically, and this is the most important one. You want to save the best for last, right? Remember Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done for you. Newton, coming to the end of his life, even though he was a highly honored man, having preached to kings and to parliament, his greatest joy was Jesus. Being sick and brought into his house and carried up to his bed, he composed his own epitaph, which reads John Newton, clerk. That term was to mean a member of the clergy. So John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had so long labored to destroy. Several weeks he lay dying in his bed. On the last day of his life, with his wife, oh, excuse me, with uh, an aide there, he recited the words of one of his hymns. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast, Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest, dear name. And he stopped at that point and exclaimed, "O oh God, I was the African blasphemer. I was the one who swore and cursed and who and who used that name as an oath a thousand, thousand times." He went on reciting. Dear name, the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace, Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Weak is the effort of my heart. And cold my warmest thought. Sat here he stopped and wept for a moment. And then he went on. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Till then I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath. And may the music of thy name Refresh my soul in death. Leaning over, his aide listened for Newton's last words, and they were this. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember remember two things, that I am a great sinner, Christ is a great Savior. Above all Christians, we need to remember Jesus Christ. We need to remember who He is. We need to remember what He has done for us. We need to remember the cross where He took on the wrath of the Father. We need to see the spotless Son of God becoming a curse for us who were cursed by the law so that we could go free. Jesus Christ should be the motivator in our heart in everything we do. In fact, it's a command in 2 Timothy 2.8. Paul writing his last words to his child in the faith. Timothy says, remember Jesus Christ.